0: do you want me to record
1: i just pressed record there we go oh blaze is asking ellen if you took a picture of your uh, sriot stones not yet but
0: i will
1: thank you today is holocaust remembrance day yom Hashoah, and as is my want i um it's important for me to mark, one of my class falls on these days, it's important for me to mark it um, as we did on when Purim fell on a Thursday. So I wanna focus actually not on the Torah portion today, but on some themes related to some stories actually related to Yom HaShoah um, that are very, um, that are about my family that I learned recently. And just as I'm sharing stories, Um, I'll invite um, any of you who who would like to, what I wanna say is that growing up in the, you know, let's see, 60s, growing up in the late 50s and the 60s and the 70s, I was, and I think this is probably part of a larger dynamic um, for many Americans Jews of my, of my generation, um, the Holocaust was over there, right? It was far away and it was over there and we needed to be safe. And we were here and we were being Americans and it was good and everything was good. and Israel was good and we we're on our way. And um, it really was, it's amazing how long it took into my adulthood to actually have sink in that My mom, whose parents came over here in the 1920s from Poland, um, never knew her grandparents. And uh, there were letters that ended in 1943. And never knew half of her aunts and uncles or many, many cousins, and that's my family. Oh, and of course, similarly on my father's side. Um, and um, there was an article in the New York Times on what day? Hold on, I have it here. I have it open it was, on my desk. It was
0: in the print paper last weekend in the Sunday Review.
1: On the Sunday Review. There's a new book by Judy Battalion called The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos. I don't know if any of you saw that article. Um, And it's really compelling. Uh, This author discovered a book. uh, um, Let's see, She, she wanted to research starting in 2007, Jewish women who resisted during the Holocaust. And to her surprise, she found one book uh, called Foyen in the Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. And it was in Yiddish and mentioned dozens of young Jewish women who defied the Nazis, many of whom had the chance to leave Nazi occupied Poland but didn't, and some even voluntarily returned. Um, And so she began researching. And if you read the article, many of these women who are called kashariot in modern Hebrew, which means um, couriers, uh, they were all between the ages, you know, 17 and 22. They took their, they did this because the ones who were chosen could pass as Polish or Aryan and it was safer for them to go than the uh, men, young men, because the young men were circumcised and uh, their identity could be confirmed if they were captured. And so these, these are astonishing stories. Uh, she talks about the scope of the Jewish rebellion. And I guess I wanna say that um, as I wrote um, last week, the um, the name of the official name of Yom Hashoah, in as it was enacted by the Knesset in 1959, is Yom Hashoah. I mean Yom Hazikaron La which means the day of remembrance for the catastrophe and for the heroism. And uh, so I was focusing on the, this, this heroic aspect. More than 90 European ghettos had armed Jewish resistance units. Approximately 30,000 European Jews joined the partisans. Oh good, the link to the article is posted there. Thank you, jo- thank you Ellen. Um, rescue Network supported about 12,000 Jews hiding in Warsaw alone. All this alongside daily acts of resilience. Smuggling food, writing diaries, telling jokes, hugging a barrack mate to keep her warm. And um, I'll just read another brief excerpt to get where I'm going to. I learned that courier girls connected the locked ghettos where Jews were imprisoned. Being caught on the Aryan side meant certain death. And despite that, these young women dyed their hair blonde, took off their Jewish identifying armbands, put on fake smiles and secretly slipped in and out of ghettos, bringing Jews information and hope, bulletins and false ID papers, linking the youth resistance groups across the country. They smuggled pistols, bullets, grenades, hiding them in marmalade jars, sacks of potatoes, and designer handbags. and then I got to this paragraph because my brother sent me the link. Hela Schuper uh, dressed up as an affluent Polish woman attending an afternoon of theater, wearing clothes she would borrowed from a non-Jewish friend's mother. And then it describes some of Hela Schuper's uh, exploits. So Hela Schuper uh, was, um, is my cousin, whom I never knew until she was 80 years old. And so I wanted to tell you about her, um, because I'm it's it's important to me. Uh, so my grandfather Joseph Schuper was from Poland. He had uh, five brothers. Two of the brothers, Uncle Shlaima and Uncle Izzy. What else? Uh, Got came over here when um, they got here before uh, their brother Yosef did, my grandfather. And by 1923 or 24, when the immigration gates were shut to the United States, uh, three of them had made it over here Izzy, Schleima, and my grandpa. And those that's who I knew. Um, they came from a very religious family. My um, uh, uh my grandfather Joe was um actually the a real free thinker, very learned, but very open-minded. And uh that's how, you know, that's how we were raised, whereas um uh Uncle Schleim and Uncle Izzy's, Izzy's family were extremely orthodox. And uh, I remember when they would come to visit, my mom would get out the paper plates and go to the kosher bakery, even though we had a kosher home. Uh so that they'd feel comfortable in our house. So that was Pop's, we called my grandfather Pop. So Pop had three other brothers. I never heard about them, don't know anything about them. They were all murdered. They, their families, all their children, as far as we knew, there were no survivors from Europe. And again, as a American grandchild, I didn't think about it. I never heard about it. We never talked about it. And then about um, 20 years ago, one of Uncle Izzy's or Uncle Shlomo's sons-in-law, Mayor Axelrod was researching in uh, the uh, Yad Vashem uh, archives. And he discovered Hella Schuper. And realized that Angela Schupper was born in 1921 and lived, she lived till she was 96, um, in um, the Galilee. She came in September of 1945. We didn't know she existed. And it turned out she was living maybe a half hour from where my brother and sister-in-law and their family lived. And she had married and she had children and grandchildren. And um, uh, so Danny and Roberta, my brother in Israel and my sister reached out to them and got together. And uh, then in 2001, it was um, April, 2001, we all flew over for my nephew Sefi's bar mitzvah. And uh, Hella and her family. Her name's. Her married name was Rufheisen, All came to the bar mitzvah at Moshev Tzipori in the Galilee, and my mom met her first cousin for the first time. Hella was eighty. My mom was about seventy-five. Um. I'm going to say a little more about that because the setting was incredible also um, oh first of all, seeing her she looked like my family right because she was and um, it was a it was a very very um, Strange experience, to meet a cousin you didn't know existed and for the two of them to stand there talking Yiddish and Hebrew together. It's unbelievable. And the, the context I wanna give you is where the bat mitzvah happened. And then I wanna tell you about Hela Rufais, uh Shuper, who was an extraordinary person, um, who I only met when she was 80 years old because we didn't know, we thought she was dead. Uh, the Bar Mitzvah, the Bar Mitzvah, Sefi's Bar Mitzvah happened on Moshev Tzipori. Some of you have been there. Moshev Tzipori is a, um, uh, a farming village that has turned into a bedroom community now because in the way Israel has some um, uh, the same thing that are happening here, you know. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, Rockland County was farms. So, um, and uh, it is built on the site of an ancient city attested to m- countless times in the, in the Mishnah and Talmud called Sipori, which was the seat of Jewish life in the Galilee in the second and third centuries, especially. And... Uh, Eventually, Moshav Eventually, the ancient city of Tsipori as the Roman Empire crumbled, uh, it became a backwater. It became buried under layers of debris. The Crusaders built a um, um, citadel there that still stands on the site of the ancient city, and. Uh, uh, That was in the uh, 11th century. And eventually it became a city occupied by um, uh, Arabs, Muslims, Palestinians, and it was known as Safuria. So Tsipuri, Safuria, the place has been basically, I believe, continuously occupied for well over 2000 years. It's got a place with copious, nice, fresh springs of water, It sits up on a hilltop. It has uh, the advantage of being able to be, um, that's why the citadel is is there, so it's defensible. It's a beautiful place. In the War of Independence in 1948, which Yom Ha'atzmahut is next week, Safria was contested and battled over um, and uh, the Jewish forces prevailed and reestablished a modern brand new farming village that they called Tzipori. The uh, Arab residents scattered mostly to Nazareth. It's a whole interesting story about my sister in law when she started to understand the history of the place where she had just moved to. Roberta made a point of going to, getting some grant money, going to Nazareth and meeting and interviewing the former residents of where she was living and she actually made friends with a lot of them. It's a whole, it's a, Tepori is a perfect microcosm of Israel, right? Which means that it's unsolvable, you, you know, um, Here and because the, the Arab village of Safuria, which was demolished, underneath it, they start, archeologists started digging in the eighties and discovered this incredible ancient city of Tipuri, which is famous now for its mosaics, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things they uncovered in the dig in Tipuri was an, a synagogue that probably dates to the fifth century. A synagogue floor, there's no synagogue there anymore, but you know it's a synagogue because of the mosaic floor and because of the layout of the building. And it's been beautifully excavated. It's an amazing site. And it had just been open to the public in 2001 when Sefi's Bar Mitzvah was happening. And Roberta arranged to have Sefi's Bar Mitzvah in this ancient synagogue from the fifth century that hadn't been prayed in in 1500 years. I actually got to lead the service. The whole thing blew my mind. I'm trying to paint this picture for you. Um, I hope this word picture is giving, you, giving a nice impression. Oh yes, thank you. That's a picture of the pavilion and the uh, mosaic floor upon which it rests. It's not the best picture because you can't see the images in the mosaic floor, but there it is. Thank you for finding that. So there we were. Uh, you know you know everyone we we have heightened moments in our lives and this is the one I wanted to share with you there we were Jews praying in a synagogue that had been buried under rubble successive generations of rubble for 1500 years rededicating it and my nephew is reading from the Torah in the synagogue Ellen you have oh there's a famous um picture of the mosaic called the mona lisa of the galilee i could talk and talk about zippori it's really a remarkable place when my brother um put in a swimming pool and i'm sure some of you heard me tell this story before the excavators discovered roman columns that had toppled over that were basically under danny's backyard and so he um stood them up at the end of his swimming pool. He had Roman pillars at the end of the swimming pool. And then in Israel, of course, you're not allowed to dig anywhere without a permit. And of course, so that means most Israelis just dig because you can't, it's so impossible to get a permit. So it's the sort of the Israel, you know, if you live in Israel long enough, you figure out how to, how you have to do it there. And so Danny just dug, put the pillars up at the end of his uh, swimming pool. And then, the antiquities department came snooping around and gave them a summons. And so they took the pillars away, so it goes. And Roberta's hobby is she finds, um, um, you know how um, the um, clay pots have handles. You just walk around and you find 2000 year old handles on the ground. Okay. So we finish this service and we go outside for the Kiddush. And there is, you know, so, and, and there, uh, so there we all are from all over the place. I mean, and my mom and her cousin Hella are meeting for the first time on the site of this fifth century synagogue, but we're surrounded by ancient olive trees that were the olive groves of the Arab residents who lived there for centuries. And here we are kind of the scattered fragments. We are the scattered fragments of the Holocaust gathering together in the land of Israel, on contested land, but also on Jewish ground. And that's, that's a picture of our story if i i hope i'm communicating that well Um, and so i looked up so again hella's had hella had written a memoir in hebrew which i never read but when i saw her name in the um times i went and looked her up and i looked her up on the jewish women's archive which is a great site um, and um, there's a long article about her that i printed out i'll uh, i'll put the link in to the chat give me a moment let me just retrieve it Hold on one sec. This should work. This is the article that uh, I found. Let me tell you a little about her on this Holocaust Remembrance Day. One of five children, Hella Schuper, was born in Krakow on June 7th, 1921 to Simcha and Pinchas Shuper. So Pinchas was my grandfather's brother. They were murdered. They died in 1943, murdered. She had two sisters, Nahama, died in 1942. Miriam died in 1943. Two brothers, Joseph died in 1943, and Heshi died in 1942. It's i am I'm gonna read a little to you. Schuper grew up in a Hasidic atmosphere. Her maternal grandfather had been a trusted assistant to the Rabbi of Bobov, the Bobov Rebbe. Her father, my great uncle Pinchas, was a cantor and a shuchit, a, a kosher butcher. I didn't know that. In 1931, when Hella was 10 years old, her mother died after giving birth to their youngest child, Miriam left with five young children to care for her father gave hella into the care of her grandmother even after he remarried <clears throat> hella stayed in the very religious home of her grandmother her aunts and uncle but and now this gives you this amazing picture of life in poland in the 1930s so she's living with this hasidic family her grandparents but she attended the polish public school where she was exposed to Polish patriotism that was in sharp conflict with the very religious atmosphere of her grandmother's home. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that as kind of a picture of how, how cosmopolitan Poland was at that point and how much turmoil uh, there was in every family. When Hella was 14, her grandmother died, and Hella remained with her aunts and uncles. Upon completing elementary school, she attended the Polish Commercial High School. Instructors from the Women's Organization for Military Training, a Polish nationalist organization, visited the school to persuade the girls to join their group. When Schuper saw that no one was interested, she became ashamed of her classmates' lack of patriotism and joined, whereat, whereupon other pupils followed suit. This is a Polish group, not a Jewish group. The group's meetings were devoted to culture, sport, riflery, and pistol practice. Schuper was a member for two years until she was 16, but she left demonstratively after a member of the Polish parliament tried to have Jewish ritual slaughter abolished, ostensibly on humane grounds. Schuper, however, saw this as an anti-Semitic act. What kind of young woman is this? She's 16 years old, and so her friends, who had been trying for years to bring her into the Zionist youth movement, succeeded, and she joined the Akiva youth movement. These were, these youth movements were what tied so many young people in Eastern Europe together—young Jewish people. Listen to this. Um, she decided to join Akiva when one of its leaders assured her that although the movement was Zionist, it was not atheist. Interesting, her family, who had not opposed her activity in the Polish nationalist youth movement, since they saw it as part of her school activities, opposed her joining the Zionist movement because it was co-ed. Advocated immigration to Palestine and was, they felt, remote from Judaism, one of her uncles described her membership in the movement as unbecoming to a girl of good family. I'm sharing this with you again, just to give you the kind of the, <clears throat> the texture of all of this. Considering herself independent because she supported herself by working in a laundry, Schuper went to the movement summer camp against her relatives wishes. She decided that she would leave home And she basically severed contact with her family and made the youth movement her home. And war broke out in 1939 when she was 18. And uh, I'm gonna read a little more. The youth movement decided to flee eastward to, to the Soviet Union and afterwards to join the Polish army together with her brother, Joseph. Shupra traveled some 200 kilometers to Rojvodal, which they reached on the eve of the Jewish New Year. When the Germans caught up with them, they decided to return to Krakow, arriving after Yom Kippur in 1940. After Joseph was captured by the Germans and badly beaten, he decided to flee eastward again. This time he refused to take his sister with him, thinking her incapable of enduring the difficult journey. And then in February, 1941, the Germans announced that only 15,000 people would be able to enter the Krakow ghetto. Of all her family, only Schuper was permitted to enter. Oh, but the rest of the family went to Warsaw. So she traveled to Warsaw. And um, she joined 25 members of a youth movement, who uh, supported themselves working at various jobs. And later in, in the day and conducting a wide variety of movement activities, they established a group of 300 members whose activities included the study of Torah, Jewish history, Hebrew, and literature. And let me pause here. I always do better reading somebody's story than history usually, myself, you know? But the nightmare that's being described here, I want to admit it still eludes me. I have been so blessed. This is only the movies for me, still in, in my head. I guess we could say, may it ever be so. But there are so many others in the world for whom this isn't a movie, even today. As conditions in the Warsaw ghetto deteriorated where she was, Uh, matters took a dramatic turn after the great action of July 22nd, 1942, in which 265,000 Jews were sent to the crematoria of Treblinka. This action sparked the establishment of a militant Jewish underground. Shuper represented Akiva, one of the movements at the meeting that established the Jewish fighting organization. Shuper conveyed the committee's decision about armed struggle to her comrades, most of whom were in favor. And so she now began her career as a courier in late July between Warsaw and Krakow, and between Krakow and other branches of the movement, Dyeing her hair a lighter shade, she set out on the dangerous journey out of the ghetto, continuing by train to Krakow and into the Krakow ghetto, all without identity papers. The Germans were not her only source of potential danger. She also had to beware of Schmalkowinicki, Polish blackmailers, who extorted money from Jews who were passing as Aryans, threatening to hand them over to the Gestapo if they did not pay. She made it to Krakow and reached the group that she was supposed to reach. They had no weapons. So the task of bringing the weapons from Warsaw fell to Schuper, who reported to her comrades in Warsaw about developments in Krakow and the leadership's decision that whoever had an Aryan appearance and could reach Krakow must do so and go to the forest to fight. while whoever could not leave the ghetto because of their Jewish appearance should join the fighting underground in in Warsaw. When Shupa returned to Warsaw with these orders, she learned that many of her friends had been deported in the Schuper entered the ghetto toward evening as part of a returning work detail, meaning she had to slip in to group walking into the ghetto. Schuper brought 10 pictures of colleagues with her so that an expert forger could prepare identification papers for them. That would enable them to leave the Warsaw ghetto and join their Krakow comrade. This time Schuper was asked to bring weapons from Warsaw that a member uh, that had purchased for them. And so... She again returned to Warsaw and returned safely to Krakow two days later with the weapons hidden under her dress and the explosives hidden in her bag. And then there's, I'm skipping some details. Uh, nevertheless, on her way from Krakow to Warsaw, Schuper was arrested by a Polish officer who suspected she was Jewish. She was in a special danger this time since she was carrying the forged papers for her colleagues in the Warsaw ghetto. Keeping her nerve and ability to maneuver, Schuper insisted she was Polish and that she had to use the toilet urgently. Once there, she flushed all the papers down the toilet. After three days of detention, the police released her as a Polish Catholic woman and even apologized. She entered the ghetto once more in her usual way by joining a Jewish labor detail returning from work. Once again, Schuper collected photographs of comrades so she could return to Krakow and try to come back with identity papers forged by her colleague. Um, wow. On her return to Krakow, Schuper encountered a great deal of underground activity there in preparation for a second exodus to the forest after the first failed attempt. Couriers such as Schuper, Rivka Libiskin, and others who looked Aryan were sent to various cities Near the forests to prepare safe houses for the future fighters to use as exit points and hideouts. Um, she went, rented a room in Lvov and uh, she distributed the false identity papers. And uh, in 1942, she was in Krakow. Unknown to her, an action was taking place in the ghetto during which her younger brother Hesh was murdered and her sister was killed together with all the children in the orphanage. She managed to save her youngest sister, Miriam, and hide her on the Aryan side in the home of the Polish janitor of the building where her grandmother was. And then she returns to the Warsaw ghetto and is there for the Warsaw ghetto uprising in the bunker in Mila 18. But because She's a courier. She leaves before the final destruction of the ghetto. Uh, She raised 30,000 to ransom three prisoners. Once again, mingling with the workers, leaving the ghetto for the night shift. She was caught by a German guard renowned for his cruelty. Once more, she was detained at the police station. This time appearing before the Polish and German police. She managed to stuff the money quickly into the pocket of a Jewish boy, who entered to sweep her cell? Once again, her courage and aplomb served her as she insisted she was Polish. This time she decided to escape, taking advantage of the permission she received to relieve herself near the ghetto wall with only one German police officer to guard. Seizing an opportune moment, she ran off. A hail of bullets followed her, one hitting her foot. Reaching a dark place, she hidden some ruins emerging to enter the ghetto in the morning when movement had resumed. Um, um, she was colleagues with Mordechai Anelowitz, the leader of the Warsaw ghetto uprising. And Anelowitz ordered Schuper to accompany group to the Aryan side as she had successfully done before. You will succeed this time too, he told her. Uh, And she was to meet someone and she got out. She evaded the German bullets, fired at her as she emerged. um, And she could report everything that was going on in the Warsaw ghetto to the rest of the resistance. Um, And then the bunker was destroyed. The Germans pumped in poison gas. There were only five survivors of that Warsaw ghetto uprising. And she too, at this point was captured and sent to Bergen-Belsen. She survived. On March 8, 1945, all the inmates were ordered to the railroad station. The train finally stopped near Magdeburg where the German officer in charge fled together with his men, leaving prisoners inside the train to be liberated by American soldiers. With the end of the war and victory over Germany, Schupper found it hard to rejoice. Alone and helpless, her family and comrades dead, with no apparent reason to go on living, she could no longer hold back her tears. She decided she would have to go on living, telling the story, as she quotes, of what happened to us during the years of the occupation of the murder of millions, of life in the ghettos, of the unequal, impossible and heroic struggle against the Nazi beast, and the hope that I would participate in building Eretz Yisrael. Arriving in Palestine in September, 1945, that's three months later, Shuper joined her comrades on Kibbutz Beit Yoshua, where she met her future husband, Aryeh Rufais. In 1949, they married, moved to Bustan HaGalil in the Western Galilee where they built their home and ran a farm. They have three children and many grandchildren. And she wrote an account of her experiences in a book in Hebrew called Farewell to Mila 18. I wanna show you her picture. That's what she looked like when I I met her. Here's what she looked like as a young woman in 1940, 42. I found a couple of other pictures. Here she is on a train taking them to Belgium after the war. And here she is with another Jewish girl passing as Aryan during the war. <clears throat> um, since I brought her to life with these words, I also found a a um, two-minute video at the Yad site of her speaking. So let me share that with you as well. Okay, let me let me bring it up. It'll just take me a moment. Um, Let's see, I think it's this one. Oops, one moment. (hierno)
0: I had to go from varsha. in the אז הצגתי את תנועת קיבה. דיברו על זה שאנחנו מוחרקים לא לשנוק. אני הראונטיית בת הקמת ארגון יהודי לוחם. בערב פסח הם התחילו להיכנס לגטו, ולהחסל לסרוך עורכות שעליהם עמד בלכבות. עשרים קבוצות לוחמות, מפוזרות, אז מיד זרקו עליהן הלימונים שהיו מטבקבוקי מאוד טוב. אני הגעתי לבית ברחוף מילה 18, שהוא היה עונקר. היינו שמה כמאי האיש, לוחמים. עמדו בלכבות, גם יורים וגם לוקחים להשמדה. אנשים, לא היה להם פנשק במילי לחיים, לא הייתה שום תקווה. אבל עשו את שלהם, לחמו נגד הגרמנים, את כמה שיוכלו. מורדוחה, אני נבץ' בא אליי ואומר, אלא תוכחה לצאת עם עוד עשרה אנשים, אבל את תגיעי ליצחק, לצד הארים, להגיד לו שהמצב הוא מאוד והגרמנים גומרים את הגטו וצריך להוציא את הנשים בקוצה. באו הגרמנים והכניסו חומר נפץ וחומר מרעיל לתוך בילה 18. יורק וילנר צעק חברים, הכדור האחרון מגיע לנו, והרבה אנשים התאבדו, בחיים. המחמדים, אקיבה, שבת, מי שרוצה לחיות, pas Anach no אנחנו gili lafe biswise los Ro Tal à ma so. Je mari au volet do
1: I'm really grateful that I learned of Hella's existence. She was the only super family member in Europe who survived as far as we know. And she doesn't know why she survived. Survivors don't know why, they like why, but thank God. Sylvia, you you here? Yes. Oh, there you are. Um, you were born in in Europe in DP camp.
0: Yes, actually, you know it was they. Uh, I th- it was either in Bergen-Belsen or near it that it it got converted into a DP camp. Mm-hmm. And also, my father after the war didn't want to get married. Uh, so my mother went off to, I think, Budapest and he went off to Belgium. So I don't know if he was on that same train, maybe. Wow. Yeah. They, then they reunited.
1: Were they both camp survivors, Sylvia?
0: Uh my mother was, my mother and her sister were in Auschwitz, but my father was hidden by an Austrian guard at, from a work camp, hid him in with his family. Wow. Yeah.
1: And I don't know everybody else's story here, but I guess my point and why I wanted to, even though it's such crazy, impossible things to try to continue to wrap our minds around, it is Yom HaShoah. And that's why we consecrate days so that we don't spend our entire life thinking about it because that would make you... couldn't live. But we have to have these days to remember this. Um and so I wanted to remember today, especially because of that, um, that uh, New York Times article that brought me back all around to this, this particular family story of mine. You know, for Sylvia, it was immediate. Uh, for me, it's taken me decades to kind of understand the, um, the generational trauma that was inflicted uh, regardless um blaze i assume it'll be recorded tonight can we record it tonight
0: i can yeah sure
1: okay there's a um oh naomi your mother's mother lily was from krakow came after world war one much to appreciate mourn and rejoice thank you naomi um Trauma. Let me uh, share with you an interesting side story that illuminates this. Helen married her husband's name. Uh, what was his first name? Um, Arya Rufais. Arya was also a survivor. And he had a brother, Oswald Shlomo Rufaisen, his brother in during the war, he was Jewish obviously, rescued uh, and saved um, hundreds of Jews through his ability to forge papers and to, um, and that was uh, um, Hella's brother-in-law. Then, As he escaped the Nazis during the Second World War, he took refuge in a monastery. And while he was there, he converted to Catholicism and his name became Brother Daniel, Brother Daniel Rufheis. Yet he continued his work rescuing Jews and he still considered himself, and this is the part of the complication, a Jewish nationally, even if he'd become Catholic spiritual. And he was a hero. And after the war, he became a priest. And then he wanted to come to Israel on Aliyah in the 1950s. The Israeli government would not allow him to immigrate as a Jew because he converted to Catholicism. And it was a giant controversy in Israel, as you might imagine. And I only knew about this from being a student of history also. I didn't realize he was Hella's brother-in-law until I got to know the family. Um, and the reason I'm telling you about this is ultimately, he came to Israel as a Catholic priest, as a monk, to live in a monastery on Mount Carmel. And he lived his life here, Yeah, here, here, you know, he lived his life out in Israel. And I guess I'm there right now. He lived his life out in Israel, even though he was never, and he became a naturalized citizen because he lived there, but he couldn't come back under the law of return because he'd converted to the Catholicism. The reason I'm sharing this all with you is to share with you the kind of the the trauma under which Israel itself was trying to create itself. The how do you how do you reintegrate the scattered and um, fragmented souls into a into a new entity? The story of Israel is so remarkable in that way. And if we don't carry with us the understanding of the trauma that little country was laboring under, just like, as I think about all the ways I didn't hear about my half of my murdered family, um, that a story like Brother Daniel is so complicated and compelling. Um, And he always considered himself a Jew. Uh, he, 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 by affiliation, even though he had had this conversion experience and was a Catholic priest who lived in a monastery on the slopes of Mount Carmel. Oh, Blaise, you might have stayed there in that monastery. I don't know which it is exactly. And I want to talk about also the spirit spiritual, I expressed it this way when I wrote about it, mm, let me just find the page, um, Oh, no, it must have been uh, another place. Um, the, it's almost as though our spirits as Jews were irradiated by the nuclear holocaust of the Holocaust. And so so to part of my, I guess I want to say this on this occasion of Yom HaShoah, A deep part of my calling as a rabbi is to help us reclaim, heal and reclaim our our Jewish joy and pride um, in the wake of the the unbelievable uh, trauma and terror that was placed upon us. Uh, So, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this story of Hella Rufheisen Schuper, my mom's first cousin and the only survivor of my grandfather's family uh, who had not already escaped uh, from the Nazis.